0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. Will smart speakers be able to see as well as hear?
2: They're trying to make the device more aware so that it does more, so that it's more useful. But they're doing it in a privacy-preserving way by not using a depth camera or a camera or video.
1: And the cyber guru, Douglas Rushkoff, tells us why he's disappointed... With how the internet society has
3: developed. You know, when I was a kid, hackers looked for exploits in systems, and now we develop systems that look for exploits in humans.
1: But first, There is a lot of buzz about Uber's public listing this week, following on its ride-sharing rivals Lyft's recent IPO. But are the rise of these services a good thing? A study was also released this week called, Do Transport Network Companies, TNCs, Decrease or Increase Congestion? The study was by researchers at the University of Kentucky, and it focused on traffic in San Francisco between 2010 and 2016. And to answer the question, I'm joined by the lead researcher, Greg Earhart. Hello, Greg. Hello. Greg, answer the question that you pose in your title, does it or does it not?
4: Transportation network companies, which we mean by Uber and Lyft and other such companies, very clearly, according to our results, increase traffic congestion.
1: Okay. Now wouldn't that be obvious? Because, of course, if there's lots of cars on the road driving people around and they're not using public transportation, that you would have more congestion.
4: You know, it seems like it should be obvious, but there's been a a narrative that's been pushed over the past several years uh, that they may do the opposite. Uh, The narrative is that they could actually reduce traffic congestion, either by incentivizing people to own fewer private cars, by incentivizing carpooling, or by sort of complementing public transportation. We find that these things um, aren't enough to offset the uh, increasing impacts that they have.
1: And what evidence did you bring to bear to come to your conclusion?
4: Okay, so what we did is we looked at a case study in San Francisco, California, between 2010 and 2016. We had access to a very unique data set there. One of the challenges in this research is that it's very difficult to get data on TNC use. We actually had some computer scientists build a program to scrape the APIs of Uber and Lyft and record where the vehicles were driving around the city. We used this to infer where the trips took place, and we related that to a separate data set showing changes in roadway travel times in San Francisco over this period.
1: Okay, but... The period didn't stay the same. There was probably a great influx of people because there was an influx of capital leading to more jobs and more people on the roads. So how do we know that it was actually these ride-hailing companies that were responsible for the congestion?
4: Exactly. That's one of the challenges in this sort of research. We're not working in a laboratory environment where you can do a perfect controlled experiment. Instead, uh, we're in a situation where many things in a city change at the same time. So what we do instead is we control for these statistically. We have a, a separate model that we refer to as SFChamp, and it's a simulation of the transportation system accounting for where people go. And that predicts uh, traffic volumes on roadways, but interestingly, it does not account for TNCs. And what we find is that when we apply this analysis, we would underestimate the increase in traffic congestion. And further, when we look statistically at this, and that, that, by the way, controls for factors such as growing employment, increased population, and changes to the transportation system. But when we control for those factors, we find that the increase in congestion is over and above what we would expect from that background traffic. And further, that the increase in congestion is concentrated specifically in those locations and at the times of day where there's a high density of TNC activity.
1: So how much more congestion are we talking about?
4: Okay, so according to one metric, vehicle hours of delay, which is essentially how much longer it takes you to drive relative to if you can drive the speed limit, that increased by about 62% between 2010 and 2016, uh, with more than half of that increase attributable to TNCs. That sounds like a lot. That's a lot. I've, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm used to seeing small changes in the transportation system. This is a very big change over a very short period of
1: time. Now, the TNCs, these companies, they're not happy with your research. They think it's bunk. Explain their criticism and why you feel their criticism is wrong.
4: Okay, well, they have been criticizing us in various ways, and they say maybe we don't account for certain factors, or maybe we've left something out. But when they do that, they in no way have provided data to support their claims. One of the main challenges here, one of the main things that we're doing is we're committed to transparency, we're committed to, you can go to uh, our paper, to Science Advances, download the data along with this, and do your own analysis. So unless the transportation network companies are willing to provide the data and the evidence to back up their claims, uh, I would not take them that seriously.
1: So it seems that the study shows a damning effect on traffic in these municipalities. What's the implication? What should wise policymakers and city planners do relative to this new information that they have?
4: We specifically stopped short of making policy recommendations in our research, deferring instead to the elected officials and policymakers whose job that is. There are, however, a number of strategies that they are considering. So, for example, there's a question of how TNCs should be regulated. Historically, cities have played an important role in regulating the taxi industry with rules to protect passenger safety, rules to protect uh, equity of access, and so forth. Those rules have generally not applied to TNCs, so there's a question of what the rules should be. And then one thing we have seen is a direct result of this study. After presenting these results to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, they resurrected the idea of congestion pricing in San Francisco. This is something they had studied about 10 years ago. And now they're saying, look, congestion is getting worse. We want to take a second look at this. The idea would be a a strategy similar to London's congestion charging zone, where you charge users and drivers to bring a vehicle into the downtown area. And that would uh, both generate some revenue that could be uh, used to improve the transportation system and incentivize people to drive outside of peak hours or to switch to uh, more sustainable modes.
1: That's really interesting. Greg, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, we've reached out to both Uber and Lyft for comment. We didn't hear back from Uber, but we have from Lyft. And a Lyft spokesman has told us, Lyft is actively working with cities on solutions backed by years of economic and engineering research, such as comprehensive congestion pricing and proven infrastructure investment. We're investing deeply in products and new infrastructure for bikes, transit, and shared rides to contribute to the greater solution.
4: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Next, the rise of the smart speaker shows no signs of slowing down. Increasing accuracy and voice recognition is allowing ever greater levels of interaction with the user. But could this be about to go one step further? A new project by researchers at Carnegie Mellon University suggests using LIDAR, a system that works in a similar way to radar, using electromagnetic waves, to allow the smart device to build up a picture of its surroundings. In effect, it will have vision as well as hearing. To discuss how this will work and why it could be the next evolution for the smart speaker, I'm joined by Paul Marks, who wrote about it for this week's Economist. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. First, explain to us what LiDAR is and where it attaches itself to the smart speaker.
2: LiDAR is a laser, basically, bounces off the surroundings. The return signal tells you how far away it is. It's just like radar. you will have seen it on driverless cars, spinning around on top, assessing the environment around the car. It's just one of the sensors used. And in this uh, experiment, um, the LiDAR has been shrunk to Internet of Things device size so that... Voice assistants can not only hear everything we're saying, but also get a sense of what's around them in the room we're in, and attempt to help us with all kinds of projects. Okay, but why LiDAR? Why not just attach a camera? Well, a camera can see everything. It can see who's in the room, and it is therefore possibly to be regarded as a privacy threat. So if you use a LiDAR, and it's only using a laser beam, about six millimetres high above the table. It's just sensing what's on the table and what's around it. It's not giving the voice assistant company a vision of everything in your room. So the whole point of this is that because voice assistants are regarded as invasive, let's give it a bit of visual awareness, but let's not give away privacy while we do it. So this very thin laser beam that can spin around the base of something like an Alexa. It just spins around invisibly. It's a, an eye-safe infrared laser beam. You can't see it. It doesn't hurt. But it's just a six-millimeter beam that washes over the surface around you and senses what's on the surface and who's around, how many people are around, not who they are. And the belief is that this is going to make the smart
1: speaker more effective at being a
2: smart speaker. Yes, it should be able to do much more for you. It should be able to suggest more things to you. For instance, I mean, you could you, it could help you with cookery, say on the table where your Alexa is, you are, you are cooking something, Thai green curry. It could recognise that you've got the right ingredients out and the right um, utensils and stuff to, to get on with the recipe, that kind of thing. And something else it will do besides sensing things is sense gestures. For instance, you, you could swipe and have that regarded as a control for something. So one of the things they've done the researchers at Carnegie Mellon is, have it recognized when there's a smartphone on the surface and it turns the surface into a a large music controller. So you just swish through your music just, just with a swipe on the table without having to poke at the screen.
1: And do the researchers think that using LiDAR in this way will actually obviate the privacy
2: concerns? 100%. They're trying to make the device more aware so that it does more, so that it's more useful. And they have got commercial interest in this, although they won't tell me who from. But they're doing it in a privacy-preserving way by not using a depth camera or a camera or video. I talked to the University of Michigan, who've done research on voice assistant privacy, and they were impressed. They said, this is good. This is the way to go, this kind of privacy-preserving action. At University of Michigan, they've researched how people just resign their privacy to voice assistants. They don't know how to cope with it, so they just let it go. So they feel that it is up to researchers now to start. If you add a function, make it privacy-preserving as you do it. Paul, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
1: And you can read more about smart speakers and LIDAR in the upcoming issue of The Economist. If you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Finally... We've heard about how technology is enhancing the smart speaker and allowing us to travel more easily, albeit in traffic. But what about the human consequences? Is the technological advancement anti-human and instead of enriching our lives, making us somehow less humane? One person who worries about this is Douglas Rushkoff. He is a professor of media at the College of New York in Queens, and he's the author of numerous books on technology and society going back 25 years including the book Siberia in the 1990s, which was extremely optimistic about the Internet society. Today, he has reservations, and he spoke to my colleague Nick Barrett about them.
5: Douglas Rushkoff, anything that we believe can satisfy us, can frustrate us in equal measure, do you think your frustration with the modern Internet was fueled by the excitement and enthusiasm you had when it was starting out?
3: In large part, yeah. You know, from the beginning, I felt like there's this... uh, there was a window of opportunity to use the internet to really imagine very new constructs, new ways of doing culture, business, education. And we ended up really using the internet to reinforce some of the kind of the worst features of our society, you know, and and the worst aspects of capitalism and growth-based business. So I would think, yeah, partly part of my frustration is is based on, The difference between the potential of these technologies to generate cultural change and their their use for much more uh, uh, reactionary sorts of forces and reasons. Many people think that these technologies are intrinsically disempowering or intrinsically dehumanizing and they're not. It's just the way we've chosen to program them.
5: There seems to be a kind of popular anti-tech intellectual community now. We go and we read books by Douglas Rushkoff. Or we watch episodes of Black Mirror. Then we log back onto Instagram with a sense of kind of ironic detachment, which seems to facilitate our ongoing complicity. We love to hate these services, mm. and yet we still love them. Can critiques like yours really change the way we build these platforms?
3: Yeah, because my critique's not anti-tech at all. My critique is pro-human. You know, and I feel like you know, I look at movements like, say, the humane technology movement. That's in Silicon Valley now and that's a bunch, of, a bunch of the people that developed some of the most heinous addictive technologies consciously see the results of what they did, like the people who developed the streak feature on Snapchat that addicts, you know, 12-year-old girls to having a conversation every day on this thing, whether they want to or not, that they started this thing called humane technology. And the orientation of it feels wrong to me, as if we're going to make technology treat people better, you know? So it's as if people are like cage-free chickens and we're going to treat them nicer on their way to the slaughter. We'll treat people nicer as we extract their data. It's always about how the technology is treating humans rather than what are humans doing with the technology. So I'm looking instead of saying, oh, technology's bad and stop Facebook and stop Google and let's make laws to stop the invasion of privacy and all. I'm thinking, let's increase our own cultural immune response as people. I'm not looking to business to be less mean to people. Business is going to do what business does because they're running a program unconsciously. But if I can help people kind of restore a sense of dignity to think of, of human beings as having more than utility value, then we won't be trying to ape our technology so much. I don't think if people with healthier social lives and people who can make eye contact won't be as uh, likely to succumb to these sorts of addictions. You can't ask Las Vegas to make slot machines that tell people not to gamble. But you can help people find uh, social lives and communities and uh, an economic resilience that doesn't make them turn to Las Vegas to get rich.
5: In any sense, does it bother you that the algorithms find it so easy to nail down human beings and get us addicted? Um, It seems like we're actually very similar and quite easy for them to manipulate.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it was surprising to me, I guess, how easy it is to find human exploits. You know, when I was a kid, hackers look for exploits in systems. And now we develop systems that look for exploits in humans. And I guess it surprises me the same way I'm still surprised when I see, you know, a hypnotist pull someone out of the audience and get them to act like a chicken or do something. I'm thinking kind of like never believed in hypnosis in a way. I always thought the person is just, why are they doing that? But yeah, so I guess I I was surprised by how easy it, it has been to do that. But it's also why I feel like if it's that easy to find people's exploits, it should be that easy to have people, well, orchestrate their own set of responses. I don't think it's that hard when you go through – You know, when I went through my Twitter feed and I saw that crazy picture of the, the little video of the kid with the MAGA hat staring at the Native American and I watched – All my friends, smart people, professors of media and journalists commenting on this, making ridiculous statements. Oh, look at this horrible kid. Look at this horrible Indian. Look at this horrible – and using it to vent their outrage. And I was thinking, wow, they just let themselves be triggered by something. They have no discipline. And after they get burned like that, I feel like maybe they're smart enough to say, oh, I'm going to wait till a professional journalist gets there and tells me what happened before I just – vent like that. Um, And I think we do have that sort of basic discipline and self-control.
5: Speaking of getting burned, do you think before we as a society as a whole change our attitude towards the internet, there has to be some kind of awful cathartic incident or do we just have to wait for the next generation to approach it with a greater sense of awareness?
3: I mean, I hope there doesn't have to be a particular Cathartic incident, I mean, I know the thing that they say about the f- putting the frog in water and having it slowly heat and then it'll die. Turns out that's not true. The frog jumps out of the water when it gets when it gets too hot. they don't die. Um, it's a nice metaphor, but it's not real, and I feel like no, in other words, like do we have to have the climate completely collapse before we start looking at it or dealing with it in a real way? I certainly hope not. I think that people are becoming more aware. And radically so. I do get every year in my classes now when I teach them, every semester, more kids come up to me with a little note from their doctor saying, please excuse Johnny from class participation or from presentations because he can't uh, – uh, he gets too much anxi- social anxiety and all. And So I, I do feel like people are becoming aware that this is affecting our basic functioning you know, and so we are starting to look back at the classroom and saying, you know, well, do we want kids on the iPad in the class the whole time or do we want to teach them how to talk and present? And I feel the same way in the, on a macro level that, you know, as we see, oh, it's getting really hard to grow food and, you know, the bugs are going away and there's only 60 years of topsoil, that even if it doesn't affect this quarter, it is affecting the, the long term sustainability of, of most of our companies.
5: Douglas Rushkoff, thank you very much for joining us. Well,
3: thanks for having me.
1: That was Nick Barrett speaking to Douglas Rushkoff, whose new book is Team Human. And that's all for this week's Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It makes a difference. I'm Kenneth Cukier, and in London, this is The Economist.
3: Cool. Best interview I've ever heard in my entire life. Wow, did you and hear he's it? my
1: job. How's it
3: going? He is better than you. Tell me it. But he's young and better. smart. What can best you do? Thing.
1: I used to too, but then something
0: happened. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.